0: This is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Between now and Easter Sunday, please consider In Your Almsgiving, a tax-deductible gift to our ministry. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the spiritual journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. DiscerningHearts.com presents Crossing the Desert, Lent, and Conversion with Deacon James Keating. Deacon Keating is the Director of Theological Formation at the Institute for Priestly Formation located at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. He has led over 400 workshops on moral theology and spirituality nationwide. He is the author of numerous books including Crossing the Desert, on which this series is based. Crossing the Desert, Lent, and Conversion with Deacon James Keating. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Deacon Keating. Thank you. In your book, you state that Lent is a time for looking inside, naming evil, finding new sources of moral formation, and then moving on to a life of graced forgiveness in christ what are we asking forgiveness for
1: well the the process there is so important too especially that looking within and then the sources of formation seeking forgiveness moving on all of that is so crucial the looking in is is the point that i think we have to recover most Uh, we have lost a sense of sin we have been healed of uh, scrupulosity, the 1970s and 80s. The therapeutic movement, which conversed with Catholic morality and spirituality, have gifted us a great deal in terms of the reality of neurosis masquerading as real sin. And so we learned our lessons well over the last 30 or 40 years that The last thing we are as a church now is scrupulous. There are individuals who are still suffering from this neurosis, where they believe that once they confess their sins, they have to confess them over and over again, or they enter into a minutia of detail that is unwarranted, and uh, it's some type of uh, obsessive thinking on their part. So we really have made progress, thanks to the dialogue between therapies, psychology, and uh, morality and spirituality. Well, as with many things human, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. And it's very hard for us to keep distinctions in our head. Somebody once said that only mystics and little children can hold opposites in their head at the same time. And we have a hard time holding things together. We tend to go to the extremes. So what we did after we had these wonderful conversation with psychology is that we basically threw the baby out with the bathwater and said, well, I guess I can't really think of anything I've done wrong now because I can trace everything to determinism. It's my mother's fault. It's my neighborhood's fault. It's my unconscious's fault. It's, my, it's a genetic fault that I have. And so I guess I don't do really anything freely. And uh, therefore, I can't really think of anything that I'm responsible for. And so now we're in this moment where we have to go back and make further distinctions that we are influenced by our pathologies, but uh, we're not totally determined by them. There are still many, many zones of freedom that we have, even within being raised in a neurotic or pathological family, or you have your own organic problems and you are struggling with them personally. You still have zones of freedom that need to be confessed. Not everything is determined in you. And so I think the recovery of a a fuller sense of sin under the influence of what we've learned from psychology is the, the agenda for today to help people regain a sense of responsibility for their behavior. Even though we are influenced by other sources or other realities, when I take the $50 off of my boss's desk When I steal, not everything is traceable back to a bad childhood or an unconscious uh, eruption of fear or darkness or because the neighborhood I was raised in was filled with thieves or something like that. Uh, Not everything is traceable back to someone else's fault or some other realities impinging on my freedom. No, you saw 50 bucks. You wanted it. You took it. Uh, You're free. And it's yours. And your culpability may be lessened somewhat if we could put you on the couch and give you some psychotherapy. We might find that your culpability is lessened because of the neighborhood you lived in or what your mother did to you as a little kid. But it's not totally eliminated. And we still have this zone of freedom where I knew what I was doing. I, I still did... What I was tempted to do after my mind said, don't do it. Well, that's the whole zone of sin right there. You know what you're doing. Your conscience said, don't do it. And you still did it. Whenever there's a human act like that, you have sinned. You see something. You desire something. Your conscience says, don't go there. You go there anyway. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's it's very simple.
0: You state in the book that what is lacking is our capacity to be moved by our own sins in an appropriate manner, that somehow what we're doing, even if it's something we feel is very private to ourselves, that it has any effect at all.
1: Yeah, there is a low affect today regarding remorse. This is a phenomenon that's quite curious, that I don't feel moved. I don't feel any compassion a lot of times either toward myself, or toward the victims of my sin. It's almost like we have a sense that, oh, just get over it. Buck up. Get over it. Yeah, I did something wrong to you, but it's no big deal. Stop making a mountain out of a molehill. Or even toward myself. Oh, yeah, I did that, but that's no big deal. Don't don't wallow in pity, or, or don't take these things so seriously. And so this attitude of sloughing off free choice, really does redound to our uh, muting of a real movement of affection, movement of emotion that a normal person would have when they choose evil. And when a normal person, psychologically and affectively normal, spiritually normal as well, when a normal person chooses evil, they are moved to sorrow. That's the hallmark of a normal person. And whether we've been desensitized by our media, by movies, by television, even to some extent desensitized by pop psychology, which a lot of times told people to follow their bliss and do what they want, we have in fact been desensitized. And we have to recover normalcy. Normalcy is I steal when I come to an awareness that I'm a thief, what emerges in my affect of life is sorrow. That's normal. And especially for a disciple of Jesus who understands the whole paschal mystery of his life, death, and resurrection and what he underwent for us and the love that he represents in the flesh of the Father for us, certainly this is going to raise a different level of consciousness than the ordinary citizen of the country. If you have that whole mystery of Jesus in your conscience, well, then sorrow, yes, will emerge. It it will come forth from us after we're aware of what we have done.
0: You also help us to understand that there is a lack of awareness that sin works in a way into our hearts through a social and communal conspiracy.
1: It's a very subtle reprogramming that happens that we see other people doing evil things, and then some of those people who are doing evil things are discounting them as evil. Again, they might even be labeling you as someone who takes this Christianity stuff a little too seriously. And so there's this communal and social conspiracy. Also, of course, in the secular world, we're, we're being bombarded by it all the time, where there are people doing evil things all the time with no consequence. We see that all the time on television and in the movies. People do evil things. There's no consequence to the evil. And you don't even see an interior movement expressed in sorrow by these people. They kill wantonly. They're unfaithful wantonly. They're thieves. There's no remorse. And so socially and culturally, too, we have a lot of icons, a lot of images that come from the secular world that deaden this sense and keep us from having a living conscience. And this is why it's so important to go back to this intentional formation of conscience, so that we keep our consciences alive. And this intentional formation of conscience, of course, comes about by us paying attention to people who are friends of Jesus. Uh, The experts are not in the media, the experts are not in the universities, the experts are not in the government. Friends of Jesus, the saints, those are the people that have living consciences, that have kept their consciences of alive. And we have records now of their interior life through their own journals or biographies or autobiographies. And so we really want to pay attention and we want to be in fellowship with those people who are friends with Jesus. If you're friends with this age, of course you're going to Decontextualize the importance of your actions. You're going to dissipate the importance of having a consciousness of sin, because you're just in this age. And this age is about everything, and it's about nothing, and it's just fluid, and it it moves from stimuli to stimuli. I mean, there's nothing that really anchors this age, but for the Christian. Obviously, the life, death, and resurrection anchors us. And those friends of Jesus who suffer for him, who suffered knowing him by becoming holy, these are the people we want to hang around with as well so that we might have our consciences uh, stay alive. That's the goal, to have a living conscience in touch with holiness that's the goal of conscience formation.
0: You spoke of cultural outlets like television or various media, internet, different things like that, that can play an influence in our lives as far as giving us what the society's view of values are. Isn't it true, though, that we can be influenced just as strongly, if not more so, by the friends that we actually do keep and interact with and the conversations we actually will have at work and those encounters that we have with family.
1: Yes, certainly that's the biggest influence on our conscience is the company we keep. In fact, if the company that we keep is of quality, that is that we are keeping company with spiritual people, then when you see something in the media or hear something on the radio or see it in a movie, you'll immediately recognize it as superficial, transient junk because you have a conscience that's been formed in fellowship with other believers. You won't even waste your time with it. You'll turn it off or you'll go to a different station or you'll, if you pick up a book that's unworthy of your dignity, you'll just put it down again. There's a sense here that it is who we have fellowship with that actually gifts us with a sensitive conscience. And if you're having fellowship with people who are opaque to the world of the Spirit, well, then obviously you're going to be led into this age. You're going to be led into all sorts of superficialities. You're going to be uh, led from one distraction to the next, calling it your life, which of course is so sad. It's just such a life of superficiality and a life that has no real fixed point to it, and it's just from one thing to the next that you live. If this is your social circle, that the people you spend most of your time with are people who are rooted in this passing age, well, then certainly your conscience is going to reflect that superficiality. The difficulty and the great pain that we see in the church today is that those people who do want substance of Christ the substance of the truth of Christ. They report they have a difficult time finding fellowship. They have a very difficult time finding fellow Catholics who are interested or capable, willing to actually talk about faith and not in a politicized manner. You can always find Catholics talking about the liberal bishop or the conservative bishop or the liberal academic or the conservative academic. I mean, this becomes so boring in itself. We're always running into Catholics who are politicizing the faith. Uh, that itself is, is so disappointing. What these people are reporting is that they can't find uh, people to have fellowship with at a substantive level, where there's actual conversation about holiness and how to receive it as a gift from the paschal mystery of christ that this actual discussion about prayer and how to pray where there's actual a deep love of scripture the lives of the saints and the mass where are these catholics that i can have fellowship with where are these people almost as if don't frustrate me by telling me that you should hang around with these people when i can't even find them and this is a real crisis in the parish today, that there are a dearth of people who are willing to be friends because they mutually love Jesus, rather than they're friends because their kids go to the same school, or they're friends because they live in the same neighborhood, or they're friends because they have the same prejudices or ideologies. No. No. Where are the men and women I can be friends with? Because we both love Christ and want to be his followers. Now, of course, this is up to the leadership of the church to draw this desire out of us from the pulpit. We have to draw this desire out. Some people don't even know that that's in them as a, as a need since baptism because they've been so distracted by the passing age. And so, the leadership has to draw this out of us. Or those who have found such fellowship, they have to be more public about it, and they have to invite their friends into it. They have to be more invitatory about, come to my house, we meet here on Wednesdays, and we talk about salvation. We talk about holiness, come. So, that being said, the friendship factor is crucial because the friendship factor keeps our conscience alive, or deadens it, depending on who you're hanging out with. But at the same breath, we have to begin to be in more earnest about the formation of these Catholic friendship groups.
0: A real key in this friendship groups that can help us to grow in in this holiness and this conversion towards Christ, I think would be a virtue that you've spoken to us so often about, and that is cultivating the virtue of patience, within those friendships, the patience to be able to have the discussions and to forgive one another. It's almost, that's where the practice of forgiveness can be worked upon.
1: Yeah, it's just like in families. I mean, we we need patience with each other because we're, we're limited, we're finite, we're sinful. A lot of these groups begin because the Holy Spirit conspires to invite you into them. You know, it's not an accident that you meet certain people in your life. It's not an accident that a certain family has has asked you to come and visit them at their home. It's not an accident that a certain couple asked you out to dinner or asked you to go to a movie. You have to be very attentive to these signs that Christ is actually always conspiring to bring his people into fellowship with one another. And initially we may, you know, because of our false sophistication or something, we may say, well, I won't fraternize with that person. They're kind of nerdy or they're They're on the outs. They're not really the cool people. All of this leftover adolescent insecurity from high school that somehow we have to be with the in-group. And certainly a lot of holy people, a lot of people with faith, they don't come across right from the very beginning as being sophisticated in terms of worldliness. And we might more quickly than we would like in hindsight uh, to say no to their invitation. And that's a great sadness to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's reaching out and trying to give you a gift of something beyond the superficial groupings that we have in American culture today. Once we are in these groupings, of course, we need to forgive each other and be patient because we're, we're babes. We're learning how to speak about what we love, but we're not even sure a lot of times that we do love God more than we love life itself. We don't even know if we have that level of love in us for Jesus. And so there'll be lots of stumbling, and there'll be perhaps some embarrassment or insecurity or awkwardness in some of our conversations. Maybe the conversations in the beginning will just be five minutes, ten minutes, and then we'll all rush to have dessert or coffee together or something. Thank God we got that over with. That whole Jesus thing in the beginning makes me uncomfortable. But as we spend time with each other and as we spend time in prayer together and as we spend time perhaps reading the scripture together or going to daily mass or something like that, we'll become more comfortable with the interior life. And as the more comfortable we become, the more we'll be able to share at that level of affectivity. And we won't be so likely to offend each other. We'll be less likely to offend each other. We'll be less likely to say silly or stupid things. We will always be in need of forgiveness and patience in the parish setting, in the family setting. And definitely we, we want to pray for that in Lent. We want to pray for the gift and the virtue of patience. Because if we can't suffer one another's presence, the only option we have left is the loneliness of the American culture
0: in conversation with others there seems to be a rule out there that if you don't want a fight to break out don't talk about religion or politics and yet for those who have an incredibly close relationship with christ not to be able to speak out on matters that may challenge others speaking out in love it creates a wall, it creates a fortress because people don't want to be challenged anymore. So all of a sudden, you, those conversations break down, those relationships fall apart.
1: Yeah, it's almost like we're afraid to enflesh the faith in the political, in the cultural realm because we just want to keep everything nice. And niceness as a virtue uh, appears nowhere in the scripture and in the lives of the saints. Niceness is an American Sentiment made by uh, Hallmark greeting cards or something like that. Niceness is ephemeral. It's not even a deep virtue that comes from our heart or anything. Love is willing the good for the other. And if you're in a social situation and a conversation comes up about controversial issues, homosexual marriage, abortion, the war in Iraq, immigration, divorce and remarriage. And someone is taking a position that is contrary to the truth. We have to speak up. We we can't let this person who we say is our brother or sister in Christ continue to go down the road of error as if there is a, um, a diversity of answers. Like a buffet. Where, oh, well, uh, Sally likes to graze over there at the salad part and tom likes the meat here and it's all neutral it doesn't matter it only matters how clearly you articulate your position that's what's beautiful let's listen to how clearly tom articulates error well wow, you really have that you have that position down very well tom and then we just have a drink together and leave it for those of us who want to be affected by the life death and resurrection of jesus there's no way that we leave that he's touting his divorce and remarriage to someone who's not his wife. We have to make mention, or we have to at least note to him, that this is an error. How do you reconcile yourself, Tom, with your present situation in the teaching of Jesus Christ? Even a very simple question like that, uttered without any Type of histrionics will burrow its way into his conscience and is a faithful effort at preaching the gospel. And it's not such a soapboxy kind of thing. You don't go on and on and on. You're just trying to lead him to an awakening. When someone is very prejudiced against a minority group, And they go on about this prejudice. Again, how do you reconcile that with your receiving of the Eucharist every Sunday? These questions, two very simple questions that I just asked, they're so scandalous in our mind. To even hear someone ask that question is scandalous because we are feeding at another gospel. We're feeding at the gospel of leaving one another alone. We feed at the gospel of ignoring people's status before God and the truth. And so for me to even utter a question like that in a polite tone would be enough to send people through the roof in anger at me. Because all of this is a little too close to the call of Christ to conversion. And perhaps people would say, well, you'd ruin the party or you'd make him feel embarrassed. You use your prudential judgment. You don't announce it in the middle of a, a group. You may catch him later when he's going over to the table where the food is or he's getting a drink. or Tom, I, I listened to what you said about marriage. And um, I'm just very interested in how, how you reconcile that with Christ. And I've experienced this in my own life where I've asked people these questions. And if it's done with the right attitude, More often than not, what people say back to me is, you know, I'm really struggling with that. You know, I really can't reconcile that right now. But I had to do what I thought was best for me. They'll give some answer like that. They don't take your head off. They don't scream at you. They don't yell at you. And then you present yourself. Well, if you ever want to talk about it or if I can help you in any way, certainly very available to be present to you because I can see that there's some conflict and pain in the way that you answered the question. Christ doesn't want you to stay in that situation. So we have to practice this. We have to practice all forms of love. And this is a form of love. It's a very rare form of love today. But it's definitely worth practicing calling people back from error to truth.
0: That's all the time we have for today, Deacon Keating. Any final thoughts on the subject?
1: Whatever effort you can make to grow to your brother and sister in the parish and to begin to awaken a sense of the necessity of our common fellowship, even in the simplest of ways, begin to make those moves. Begin to move forward in making your parish a real community where faith is shared, not just where time is spent, but where faith is shared.
0: Thank you, Deacon Keating. Thank you. You've been listening to Crossing the Desert, Lent and Conversion with Deacon James Keating. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs visit discerninghearts.com or download the free Discerning Hearts app available at the Apple app and Google Play app stores. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, We pray that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Crossing the Desert, Lent and Conversion with Deacon James Keating.